This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. A warning, this episode contains mention of self-harm. In the lovely new animated film The Boy and the Heron, a boy embarks on a quest into a world where the living and the dead commingle. It's the first film in 10 years from visionary Japanese filmmaker Hayao Miyazaki, and it's inspired in part by his early life. I'm Stephen Thompson, and today we are talking about The Boy and the Heron on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Grammarly. Today, people are working to innovate and do more in their workdays. But coming up with fresh ideas and quick responses can be tough. Introducing Grammarly Go, a product offering personalized generative AI communication assistance that will change the way you write. With just a few clicks, Grammarly Go can ideate, compose, and rewrite thoughtfully, accelerating your productivity and unlocking your creativity. Go to Grammarly.com slash go. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me today is Waylon Wong. She's the co-host of NPR's daily economics podcast, The Indicator from Planet Money. Hi, Waylon. Hey, Stephen. And also with us is Sam Yellowhorse Kessler, a producer for NPR's Planet Money. Welcome back, Sam. Thank you for requesting my presence. (laughs) (laughs) It is a pleasure to have you both. So the plot of The Boy and the Heron is both simple and hard to describe. A boy named Mahito loses his mother during World War II, then settles down with his father and his aunt, who's now his stepmother. When he arrives at his new home, Mahito is hounded by an anthropomorphic gray heron who calls him on a quest to search for his dead mother. The heron in question is part heron, part man, and he's something of a trickster. But he also serves as a guide for Mahito as they navigate a realm somewhere between life and death. It's a mysterious place that's occupied by loved ones, ancestors, and cute little blobs who are not yet people. There's also a veritable army of giant parakeets. Along the way, the film reflects on human connection, life, death, and our responsibilities to one another. The Boy and the Heron is in theaters now in both a a subtitled version, and a version dubbed in English that features the voices of Robert Pattinson, Gemma Chan, Christian Bale, Mark Hamill, Willem Dafoe, 
and Florence Pugh, among others. The film is the latest from Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli, who've worked together on animated classics such as Kiki's Delivery Service, Spirited Away, My Neighbor Totoro, and Princess Mononoke. Waylon Wong, I'm going to start with you. What did you think of The Boy and the Heron? Oh, I loved it. I was really very, very moved by it. In fact, I cried my face off in this movie, (laughs) and I actually have not been able to really talk about it or even think about it without crying all over again. So So this is going to go great. Yeah, yeah. It's going to get real sloppy in here. i just been in this very contemplative, emotional state since seeing it a couple days ago. And, you know, it's really dark and challenging in a good way. I think there's a couple lines in here that will stay with me for a really long time. And normally I avoid films and television shows where children are in peril, especially now with the news the way it is. I really can't handle those kinds of stories. They're just too heavy for me. But I think that Miyazaki is maybe the only filmmaker I would trust with a story where children are in danger because I know I'm not going to get jerked around. Mm -hmm. It's more like we're going to go on this journey together and it's not going to have easy answers or tidy explanations, but it will be worthwhile to confront some hard things within the space that Miyazaki creates. And so that's where I ended up with this film And I, yeah, I loved it. Wonderful. How about you, Sam? Yeah, I agree. I really, really love this movie. And it just reminded me so much of like the power of like Studio Ghibli and the power of animation. You know, uh, uh, Waylon and I are working on a story together where we're talking with like a producer who works on animation. And he told us that like live action movies are often seeking an objective truth and animation is really seeking uh, an emotional truth. And that's what I really found in this movie was that it was so expressive in a way of a child's perspective on grief and uh, relationships and war. And I just found that it was so like... So metaphorical, <laughs> so so much not not uh, diving into a world that we were supposed to take literally, but more the emotional journey of a child experiencing all of these things who on the surface is uh, taking it very calmly, but underneath is kind of riding against this world that he's kind of dropped into. And it just consistently with Studio Ghibli blows me away. Uh, and so that was th- this was exactly the same. I, I it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful two hours. Yeah, and I mean, just to join the chorus, I I think this is a beautiful film. And I think that, Sam, the phrase emotional truth, I think, really jumps out in terms of as you're watching this movie, you're getting lost somewhat in the mystery of it. Where are they? What is this place? What is going on? And th- there is a certain amount of, like Waylon, you said, it's challenging, but in a good way. You're not necessarily sitting there following a completely linear story, but emotionally, you're right with it every step of the way. And I think animation-wise, I mean, obviously, mm. Newsflash, Studio Ghibli, really good at animation. <laughs> the combination of some of the the more like kind of cartoonish and grotesque character mm-hmm. design set against these painterly images you could just screenshot and hang on your wall as a poster it's such a gorgeous film and I, and I really I had you know kind of the same reaction Wayland did of like oh not only is this working on me, but this is going to work on me for a while. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sit and reflect on this film for a while. And and it is definitely a film that I think will reward repeat viewing. 
because the plot is so opaque at times, I think it's going to be really interesting to kind of go back and revisit how some of these pieces fit together once you know how the film plays out. I did want to ask you guys, because this film is in theaters in the U.S. in different versions, you can watch it as a dubbed version or you can watch it in subtitles, I wanted to know which you picked and why. So it's funny that you asked that because I actually have NPR's ethics handbook in front of me. And it does say here, chapter 5, line 42, subs, not dubs, Stephen. Subs, not dubs. <laughs> My go-to policy for uh, for anime is, is subs, not dubs. I just found the, the English takes on all of this a little bit distracting. And we can talk about the different vocal mm. performances later, but... You know, to me, the I, I saw both, and uh, and subs was was my preference. Well, I, I got to point out that in the ethics handbook, it says if you can see both. <laughs> it sounds like Sam, you went above and beyond and actually saw both for comparison. I am a subs, not dubs man, and only saw the subtitled version. Well, I don't have a cute catchphrase to sum up my decision of why I saw the dubbed version, but I will say I have a kid who is a Studio Ghibli obsessive, mm. and she grew up watching Totoro and Kiki and Ponyo and Spirited Away. And these are movies that mean a tremendous amount to her. And because we started watching these films before she could read, we always did the dubbed versions. And as a result, I developed incredible fondness for the voice cast. Mm -hmm. And I don't find them to be showy at all in the way that a lot of American animated films can be a little bit showy in the voice parts. And so... It really worked for me. I loved Robert Pattinson's performance, and I think it really worked for um, my daughter, too. You know, it's like I was kind of checking on her during the film to see what is her experience of this, like, pretty, again, challenging, very elliptical, weird film that is quite different than Totoro and Kiki and Ponyo. And there were times when she was like a little bit restless. She also had some questions that she had to whisper to me during the the movie. And then afterwards, she was very quiet. And then in the car ride home, she said, well, that's my favorite movie. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you want. I, I, th- I want to point out in the, in the voice cast, the U.S. voice cast, there's a really interesting article in IndieWire where they break down kind of why they cast it the way they did. And that mm-hmm. you mentioned Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson is the voice of the heron. And so... I, the, one thing they say in the article is as they're looking over the the different characters, they're like, oh, we'll get Danny DeVito. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, 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 no. The actor we have playing the heron in Japan is very handsome, is very mm-hmm. young, but is doing this voice kind of against type. So mm-hmm. we want an actor who can do that. And so they got Robert Pattinson to mm-hmm. do this, this wild voice. And you have like several actors who've done voices in other Ghibli films like Christian Bale like Mark Hamill, and they wanted the voice performances to call back to other Studio Ghibli performances. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really interesting. I really liked Robert Pattinson's performance in this. I thought it was, uh, uh, yeah, very appropriate, very much playing against type. There was one moment where his, like, kind of regular speaking voice peeks through, and I thought that was very effective, uh, kind of a great comedic moment. Mm. But for the rest of it, you can tell he's, like, borrowing a lot from, like, his uh, Lighthouse co-star, like Willem Dafoe, and kind of doing, like, a weird little guy voice. Uh, (laughs) Weird little guy. (laughs) I thought he was just fantastic. I did want to lodge a complaint against Christian Bale's vocal performance as the father and honestly very distracting because it's this kind of 
New York accent in the middle of 1940s Japan, mm. I was a little bit like put off by the whole thing. So The Boy and the Heron has been billed widely and kind of assumed widely to be Miyazaki's final film. Uh, They said that about The Wind Rises in 2013. An executive at Ghibli just said that he's still working on new ideas. Does The Boy and the Heron feel like a swan song? Does it feel more personal in that way? It felt intensely personal to me. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it felt like a swan song, but it did feel like Miyazaki, who has, you know, kind of attempted to retire before, it felt like a movie made by someone who realized he still had a lot of feelings to work out Mm -hmm. around certain things in his life about his mother, about his parents, about his upbringing, about his feelings on war and what it does to children and his own experiences. And so to me, maybe not a swan song, but definitely a oh, wait, I have a lot of things to work out and I want to do it via this film. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it'll be, you know, the last thing that he says, but it felt like he had enough built up that he needed to get it out there and express it in this way. This movie has kind of an element of time travel and of uh, different generations. And I said earlier that there was like a bit of a child's perspective to it. Um, And that is true, but you also see peeking through this idea of legacy and Mm -hmm. of what you're uh, setting up for the future. And there's a line about whether, uh, you know, leaving it up to to a new generation to either kind of create order and like keep things in balance or let things run into chaos. And you can kind of feel that like being like Miyazaki's uh, message to the audience that he's not exactly sure if his legacy is going to be maintained or kind of fall into ruin. And so it was just interesting to see these kinds of two perspectives. One is a child like dealing with grief and and mourning, and then another generation like looking forward and seeing what is to come and what they expect of their offspring. Yeah, I mean, I think thinking about it in terms of whether it's his final film or whether he intends it as his final film, I feel like he is at the point in his career where, like, for any filmmaker, any film could be your last. Mm -hmm. But I think this really stands up as, like, a beautiful final film, if it is indeed his final Mm -hmm. film. And if we get more, great. (laughs) Please live longer. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. please live as long as you can and make more of these. But, you know, I, I, I like, Sam, what you said about how it's from a child's perspective, But there's also just like this multi-generational understanding going on here. And you can really look at this film through a child's eyes, through an old person's eyes, through a a regular adult's eyes, and find something different to take away from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think about kind of those multitudes being contained in the protagonist and Mahito, who is like quite a complicated child. And this is a child who is dealing with a lot of trauma And it comes out in all kinds of different ways. And I think about there's this incredibly bracing scene that literally made me gasp where he hurts himself with a rock. And I like literally gasped out loud. Mm -hmm. It was very shocking to me. It is such a transgressive scene that you would never find in any, you know, Disney movie. Imagine that happening (laughs) in a Disney movie, you know. And I think my child also had an extremely strong reaction to that Mm -hmm. scene. 
And then later on, he says about the scar from that injury, he says, this is a sign of my malice. And that is like almost like an older person's sentiment that is like contained within this child, you know, that he expresses, that he's capable of malice, that he has darkness inside of him. And then I think about later on in the film, the mother character as a kind of valedictory says to him, it's kind of like a send off, like, you have to return to your own world so you can be a good boy. I think maybe, or maybe Miyazaki just felt like that's just what he wants from his mom. You just want the adult in your life to validate that you are a good kid, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I think about like acknowledging, like this child protagonist acknowledging that they contain malice, but that they also, their mother believes that they are a good boy and kind of like holding those things, which I think at a really basic level, adults also struggle with, you know? You want to mm-hmm. kind of like, fulfill your parents' wishes of you being a good kid, but you know that, like, because you live in this broken world that has done all these things to you that were out of your control, that maybe you have that darkness inside of you that you can't kick either. Something really interesting about this movie is, like, that they don't really put a fine point on his father's occupation. Um, Mm. It's kind of like he's a vague factory owner during a time of war who apparently makes the windshields for fighter jets Mm -hmm. as he's dealing with uh, this kind of trauma. And he's taking in the fact that he's the offspring of uh, someone who's profiting off of this war and someone who, who suffered at the hands of it. And again, like just this child's perspective, like it's really hard to deal with that and nobody's going to come and talk to him honestly about it. But we kind of see that coming out in things like, um, like the scar or uh, or like the journey that he takes um, and the decisions that he that he makes. Yeah, I just give this film so much credit for having a child protagonist who is complex. You think about so many characterizations of childhood in particularly animated films. How many animated films, you know, do do we each see in a given year where it's like there's a young, you know, like kind of teenage protagonist their quirk is that they're a klutz. You know, <laughs> their, their, their quirk is that they just keep tripping over what they're trying to say. But like, this is a kid who has a bout of self-harm. This is a kid who is grieving and, but also dutiful and also, 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 you know, and doesn't necessarily come out of it in a completely tidy way. I, I think that's part of the beauty of this film and part of why I think it's going to stick with me for a long time. And it's like the world around him is also very complex where you can't really tell the characters he meets. Are they on his side? Are they working Mm -hmm. at cross purposes? And sometimes that seems to shift during the course of his journey or, you know, the adults, like even his dad, like you were saying, Sam, the dad also seems complex. So he's not like the tweety kind dad in Totoro. Mm -hmm. He's not like the doting plucky mom in Ponyo where you're like, oh, all of these adults are like very much here to like take care of their children. Mm -hmm. And they're like these like platonic ideals of involved, caring, thoughtful parents. You have kind of like an interesting dad who is sometimes you're not sure how to feel about him. And then, yeah, even like the heron, you're not really sure what the heron's all about. And that changes as well as you go up throughout the film. All these parakeets, I'm like, are these parakeets the most morally ambiguous characters oh in the gosh. history of animated film? Like, <laughs> how am I supposed to feel about these parakeets? You're very cute for something that also seems kind of malevolent. Yeah. <laughs> I know, exactly. Yeah. And I like that kind of like not quite knowing who's on your side and who's doing what. Well, and also just like, 
characters who the 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 characters of the old women who are kind of caretakers in the earthbound portion of this story, you get to meet one in another phase of life and get just like a much richer, deeper portrait of who somebody is. I, I, mm, I love how much respect this film has for each character. Well, it's safe to say we all loved this movie. Tell us what you think about The Boy and the Heron. Find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. That brings us to the end of our show. Waylon Wong, Sam Yellowhorse Kessler, thanks so much for being here. Thank, Thank you, Stephen. You. This episode was produced by Ramel Wood and Liz Metzger and edited by Mike Katzeff with additional translation help from Yuki Noguchi. Our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy, and Hello Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Stephen. Thompson, and we will see you all tomorrow. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you... If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the LifeKit podcast from NPR.